As we continue our uh, sermon series for the summer, moving through the Psalms and seeking to expand our relationship through God using the different types of Psalms as a template. Um, Those of you who have been joining us throughout the summer may remember that there's a couple of these that are so unique, so out of practice for us as Christians uh, that I've taken the time to farm them out to close friends that I trust and invited them. Uh, So for example, we had my friend Dan Huey come and teach us about lament. Uh, We had my friend Lindsay Kennedy come and teach us about the imprecatory psalms, the psalms of anger. And this morning, I have my friend Mike Manje joining us to teach us about the wisdom psalms. Mike and I have been friends for about five, six, seven years, somewhere in that range. Um, And I've been twisting his arm for years to get him to come and minister in the city of Seattle. And then a few years ago, he was presented with the opportunity to become the pastor at our sister church, Calvary Wallingford. Uh, And so now we're kind of shoulder to shoulder in Seattle, and and that's great for me because it means I see him a lot more. So I'm really glad to have him this morning. Let's uh, welcome up Mike and look at Psalm 73. All right, welcome. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for the welcome. Um, it's great to be here. Uh, I've gotten to participate in a few things over the years here, some worship times that have been so sweet and just been watching you guys grow. Before I came to Seattle, I was just right across the lake in Bellevue for uh, quite a long time, for about 17 years or so. And so um, my friendship with Justin has been growing and um, he is, he is you know, you know Justin so well. He's a, he is my number one call when I need some kind of wisdom or knowledge. He has written at least 18,000 books uh, on whatever I've got, whatever I've got a question about, and he's been an invaluable resource for me. So um, it's really awesome to be here with you guys today and to be ministering with you guys here in Seattle. What a, I just, um, I love this city. I love our city. And uh, it's so great to be for it, serving it, and ministering uh, God's love to it. Um, we're in Psalm 73 today, and uh, as Justin said, this is, um, deals with a topic that we don't typically like to talk about or like to deal with. This is all about doubting and what happens when we come in that clash of our soul when something we believe doesn't really match what we see in our experience. So um, let's, here's what we'll do. I'll read through the whole psalm and then we'll pray, and then we'll start picking it apart a little bit. This is Psalm 73. Let's start with verse 1. It says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong, They are free from the burdens that are common to everyone else. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous heart comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them. In other words, people follow them. They drink up the waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does, not the, most high, or does the most high have knowledge? This is, this is what the wicked are like. They're always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued and I've been punished every morning. If I had said, I will speak this way, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin How suddenly are they destroyed? Completely swept away by terrors. 
as a dream when one awakes. So when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as mere fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and arrogant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet, I'm, yet I am always with you, and you hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom am I of heaven but you? And earth has, not, has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge, and I will tell of all your deeds. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for being here with us, and I want to thank you that you do not shy away from um, these types of doubts and worries that threaten to make our feet slip. But there's a promise to us, and there's wisdom to us that move through these things with you. I ask that you would guide us in that now. I pray that you would help us apply these things to our lives. Help us put these principles into practice. Help us learn and identify with this. I pray that you'd speak, Holy Spirit, to our hearts. Move in this place. We ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, this psalm is about the phenomenon of doubt. Um, and the psalm was written by a man named Asaph, who was the leader and organizer of the temple um, music program, you could say, there in the temple under David's reign, and then most people believe also under, under King Solomon's reign as well. And he was really good at what he did. He was a, basically a worship leader, essentially. Um, and he was great at what he did. He was able to put his devotion to God and his, um, uh, his love for God into song. Um, in fact, second, first and second chronicles say that he was somewhat of a musical prophet type of a person. And yet, even though he loves the Lord, he loves God, he experienced doubt, deep doubt, really troubling doubt, um, doubt that, that threatened really his spiritual, his spiritual life. And so he writes a song about it. He wrote a song about this. You mus musicians out there will appreciate this. This is a raw, honest song about the doubt that threatened to take away his faith. Um, and so his ministry was very relatable because he wrote about real things. Um, and we relate well to this because doubt is a normal human experience um, that, we, that we all will face. And it doesn't necessarily tell an accurate bearing on where your faith is, on your spiritual life. Uh, people who are doubting are not necessarily weak or less established in their faith as those that don't or appear to not have the doubts. Actually, sometimes doubt is a sign of maturity in intellectual honesty. And those who have no doubt or, or seem to have no doubt, although they seem confident, sometimes um, they're the ones in need of some growing up. They're the ones that are in need of, of, of some good old, some, some good questioning, some good thinking things through. The point is, as we are going to see, um, doubt is often the path to a stronger faith. It's the path that we need. It's necessary for us to grow and grow strong. In some ways, it's necessary. It's not safe. It's very scary. It's perilous, okay? It's not guaranteed for success. But to those who apply wisdom to it, like Asaph, this is a psalm of wisdom, those who apply wisdom to it, doubt is absolutely essential for your health, essential for your strength, as, as a, a person of faith. This psalm is not only about doubt, but it's about the journey through doubt. Um, Asaph is taking us on kind of a progressive hike, journey, climbing expedition, dealing with his process of doubt. And you can see it the way the psalm is laid out. In, uh, in verse 1, it starts out with a strong declaration of faith. He says, Surely God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. Now, in some ways, that statement is a theological declaration in and of itself. It's a truth that Asaph discovered through this whole, whole ordeal. But in a literary sense, this is a starting point for a movement that Asaph is going to take us on. I'm sure Asaph knew 
um, and believed that God was good at the very beginning. But this truth was going to be tested by what follows in the rest of the psalm, okay? Um, the body of the psalm uh, talks about the particulars of the instances, the clashes that came to strengthen his faith. And then in verse 17 through 27, Asaph guides us through the, the, his thought processes and steps that he took um, in going through this and wrestling with these things. And then finally, you see the result of his struggle in the final verse, which is basically a stronger faith in God than when we started out. A more explained and stronger, a deeper faith in God. So today we're going to look at, at three things. We're going to look at what doubt does to a person, what it can do to a person, the potential. It can go good, it can go bad. We're going to look at how doubt happens, how we encounter it in real life, how it comes about. And then finally, we're going to look at how it can make us stronger, how we can get through it and be stronger because of it and even be, in a way, thankful for it. Okay, those are the three things we're going to go through. First, let's look at what doubt does to a person. Look at verse 1 and 2. He says, Surely God is good to, to, to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Um, and this metaphor, this image, tells us quite a lot. First of all, you don't lose your foothold or slip when you're, you know, when you're walking on a sidewalk. I suppose you can. I've tripped over nothing before, it seems like. Um, but uh, you lose your foothold most often when you're climbing something, um, when you're fighting gravity, when every step counts. That's the idea. This is describing faith as a progressive climb up a very steep mountain. And this is really congruent with the rest of Bible, with the rest of the Bible, and indeed with with the way that people of the ancient Near East thought when it came to spirituality. Um, they viewed spiritual life, they they viewed a life of faith or spirituality as an ascent up a holy mountain to where the presence of God dwelt on the very top. And you can find this from the very beginning. Um, in fact, the Garden of Eden. Most scholars think because of Genesis chapter 2 describing a spring-fed river coming out of the Garden of Eden and going down and splitting off into four, the four great rivers watering the rest of the earth. Most scholars think that the Garden of Eden, or at least um, uh, in, in the imagery, was on top of a mountain where the presence of God, that, that the, the, uh, this is the first tabernacle, the first sanctuary where the presence of God, where the presence of God was. Um, after God cleansed the earth, oh, excuse me, let me, Ezekiel bears witness to this. He, as in Ezekiel 28, he described the Garden of Eden like this. He says, you were there in Eden, the Garden, the garden of God. You were there on the holy mountain of God. Um, after God cleansed the evil of the world through Noah's flood, the ark landed on top of a great mountain on Ararat, Right? And what was the first thing that Noah did on top of that mountain? He got out and he built an altar, like a little tabernacle, a mini tabernacle, a mini sanctuary, and offered sacrifice. And it was actually the sacrifice that appeased God's anger. That's when he remembered his promise and put the covenant in the sky to, to not flood the earth again. Moses led the people out of Egypt to Mount Sinai where he ascended to meet with God and get the law of God and bring it back down to the people. Abraham ascended Mount Moriah to offer Isaac as a sacrifice on, on top of that. And who can forget the famous psalm where David in Psalm 24.3 said, Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who may ascend? So Asaph is just playing off of this same ancient imagery here. He's talking about spiritual life as a journey up a very steep mountain. That's the drama of this metaphor. He's not describing a casual walk in the park or a little trip on, on some uneven ground or a route or something like that. He's talking about a long, arduous, steep, grueling hike to the summit of a mountain where the presence of God dwells. That's how he's viewing life. Um, people who hike will really appreciate this. People who, who hike... They don't have fun on the actual journey. There are sure hikers that say they do, but we know they're lying. Anybody that's been hiking knows that that's not true. Um, especially when you go someplace that takes a long time and it's very steep. You wake up at some ungodly hour just to hike to the base of the mountain where you go to sleep at some weird hour so you can wake up even earlier the next day and only live off tree bark and cliff bars 
and you walk up this mountain, barely speaking, barely able to breathe, you're not enjoying what you're seeing because you're just trying to live at this point. But somehow they do it. Why? It's because they believe the top is going to be worth it. And they believe that the arduous journey getting there will make the top even more worth it. Right? That's what hiking is all about. Um, And that's what he's talking about here. Asaph is on a hike. He loves God. He wants to ascend the mountain of the Lord. He's made this commitment, this devotion to God. How do you do that? He says by being pure in heart, right? By believing that God is good, living rightly, being good to others, living a fair and equitable life, those types of things. He's on this journey, and something makes him almost slip. Spiritually, we're not talking about a little, again, think of the metaphor. When you're, on, when you're hiking, and I'm, I am one that, I speak from experience, I am one who hikes occasionally. And when you're hiking, especially up something steep, especially with snow, right? When you're talking about slipping, it's, not, it's, it's a big deal. Because when you slip and you go down, there's nothing that can stop you. You keep falling. It's, it's a, uh, in fact, recently, um, I was hiking with some friends of mine. And we were coming back down. We were hiking Snoqualmie Mountain. We hit snow, and on the way back down, it was very important that we had just the right foothold, just the right grip. And I slipped, and I fell, and I kept falling, and I kept sliding until the only thing I could grab onto was my friend who was further down. I grabbed him, tripped him, and we both started falling and sliding and going down until we, we hit uh, some trees, stopped us right in the ribs, got us good. And, you know, we had to do like a systems check to make sure we were okay. Because it's a big, to fall on a mountain's a big deal. To slip is a big deal. That's what Asaph is saying here. In other words, he's saying his doubt almost made him completely lose his faith. He's not talking about a little blip in the journey. He's talking about something that almost ended it, that almost stopped it, that made him give up on God and give up on the whole pursuit altogether. We're talking about spiritual destruction in a sense that's the nature of doubt we're not talking about little um uh little mysteries that we can live without knowing we're talking about things that rock the very pillars of our faith and these are things that probably you've already experienced i know in my life i've gone through a series of these really troubling seasons where i where i don't know how it's going to turn out it's that type of a thing and if you and think of the metaphor if you've been hiking um, and you've almost slipped, or if you've been in some kind of a experience where you almost lost your life, almost, but you didn't. That's what he's saying. He said, I almost slipped. He didn't. He almost did. You remember what it's like, right? Right after your heart is pounding. You want to share the experience with someone? Did you see that? This is what almost happened. Um, you know what that's like. That's what Asaph is describing here. Um, so according to this image, on the one hand, doubts have the ability to make us lose our grip. They really do. They really have the ability to make us lose our faith. It's being in a spiritually precarious place in your faith journey, and it's dangerous. So it's the idea is you're teetering on the edge of a cliff. That's the idea when you're in doubt, when you're in serious doubt. They have the potential to make you fall down a mountain to destroy your faith in God completely. Now, I know um, that sounds, that's why we typically avoid this subject. Doubts are very uncomfortable. They're scary. They seem bad in general, right? And we like to avoid it. Um, But in a sense, I want to show you, they're not bad. They're actually necessary. As dangerous as they are, they're necessary. And as a church, churches should be places where we can openly discuss and welcome these things and talk about these things and go through them together. Um, Look, this is a very famous psalm. Let me just put it this way. It, it, there are some very, very, very rich truths in this psalm. Asaph puts some, some of the things of Christianity in this psalm in such beautiful, unique, articulate ways. And yet we wouldn't have this rich piece of um, poetry, this rich wisdom, if it wasn't for the fact that he went through doubt. This psalm is here because of doubt. We have it to draw on and the wisdom to draw on because he went through this doubt. Because of doubt, we we would not have this incredible declaration of thought-out faith if it wasn't for what Asaph encountered here. Therefore, 
I want to propose to you and I want to present doubt to you as important watershed moments that can either deepen your faith or can ruin your faith. Doubts have the potential of making you better or making you bitter. They, they, have, the, they have the potential of, of progressing you along and making you stronger or really ruining, ruining you altogether depending on what, how, how we apply wisdom. The harder the hike, the more you appreciate the summit. You, know, you can drive to the top. You, know, you can park at the parking lot and drive to the top. And you can enjoy it to a certain degree, but not as much as the person that just spent all day living on nothing but cliff bars and, and little oxygen to get there. They're really satisfied. They're really enjoying it. They're really enjoying the view. Why? Because they just went through something really tough to get it, really hard to get it. Um, so um, the harder the hike, the more we appreciate the summit. So hard times are good. They're opportunities. So many of us start where, where Asaph started, in verse 1, a genuine, honest, and a bit naive belief in God. It's true. What he said is true. God is good, you know. His statement is, God is good and are good to those that are, that are pure in heart. That means uh, not perfect people or sinless people, but devoted, people who are committed, people who have committed their lives to God. God is good. And you hear it, and you, you know, when you, especially if those of you grew up in a Christian environment. You kind of hear those things, and you kind of catch those things like someone catches a cold. It doesn't take much thought when someone says, God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. And we kind of go, oh, yeah, it's so great. But then we, we go out, and, and we begin to experience challenge, right? It's like someone that, that just gets a new sword, and that hasn't been sharpened yet, and it's shiny. But it's not really useful until, it's, until the edges are grinded into something that's sharp. That's the idea of what doubt can do and hardship can do. When you accept something, like, even like the basic um, tenets of Christianity, when you accept those things without really questioning them, without challenging them, um, then they won't really be quite yours. They won't really fit you won't really own them. They won't plant deep inside your own soul. You'll say it and even really genuinely believe it. But it'll be wearing, like I said, it'll be like wearing shoes that are too, that are too small. You, you won't own it. It won't be something that you can quite use yet. And when you get out there into the world, because you haven't thought it through or because you, you've avoided the scariness or peril of doubt or answering those really tough questions, it won't be long before you say, whoa, I didn't think about that. Or, wow, that doesn't make sense. Or, I have no answer for that. Or, wow, what a contradiction. I don't know what to do with that. And you will be in peril. You'll start to slip. Um, but when you face the questions and go through the journey of doubts and embrace them, um, then when you begin saying something like, truly God is good, it won't be something you just say. It'll be something that you've lived that you've actually experienced. In fact, you may not even have the intellectual backing to, or articulation to, to, to be able to prove it intellectually, but you'll know it. Deep in your own soul, you'll know it because you've been through it. You've lived through it. Um, one of my favorite books in my life is the book uh, Hind's Feet in High Places uh, by Hannah Hernard. Anybody heard of the book? Um, it's, it's an allegorical work. It's actually the book that my mom used to, to make me love reading. <laughs> she could not get me to love to read. She gave me that book, and that was it. The book's an allegory depicting a spiritual journey um, of a woman made, uh, named Much Afraid. That's her name. She's living in the city of Much Trembling. And Much Afraid, she lives with uh, her aunt, whose name, her, whose name is Mrs. Dismal Foreboding. And her cousins, gloomy and spiteful, and they're trying to force her to marry this bully, this absolute jerk named Craven Fear. And uh, furthermore, much afraid, by the way, she's crippled. She has contorted, twisted feet, twisted ankles. She can't walk straight. And she has um, a contorted, twisted, ugly mouth. She's not a, a beautiful person. And the book starts out with this line. 
Uh, it says, this is the story of how much afraid escaped from her fearing relatives and went with the shepherd to the high places where perfect love casts out fear. And that's the story. And the chief shepherd promises to give much afraid um, what he calls hind's feet. He's going to straighten out her crippled feet and give her feet of a deer, hind's feet that can skip from, from the valley of humiliation up to the high places, up to the, up to the, to the top of the mountain where her blemishes will be washed away. Um, she's going to be given a new name. All of these beautiful promises. Um, but he doesn't lead her up the easiest path. He leads her in, through some really tough a sense up this up this mountain. One of my favorite places in the book comes when much afraid uh, she faces like a sheer precipice that only deer can can like leap across. Only mountain goats can do. And she's just she's by herself. She's just weeping. She's in complete despair. Um, she's thinking, "This is it. This is my doom. I'm not going to make it." She had almost slipped. She was falling in her mind. And then the shepherd shows up, and she thinks, "Great." He's here. He's going to show me a better way, an easier way. But he doesn't. He says, no, you're going to go, you're going to go straight up this bad boy. And the sh here's the quote. It says, the shepherd laughed, and he says this. He says, I love doing preposterous things. He says, why, I don't know anything more exhilarating and delightful than turning weakness into strength and fear into faith and that which has been marred into perfection. If there is one thing more than, than another which I should enjoy doing in this moment, it's turning a jellyfish into a mountain goat. This is my special work, he added, uh, with a glint of great joy in his face. My special work is transforming things. I just love that illustration. Why does he make her go up the hard way? Because the summit in itself doesn't transform you. The journey to get there and the summit together, that's what transforms you. The hardness going through it with him it makes you stronger. Things like trials, suffering, contradictions, doubts, those types of things. Only when we face those things do we have the potential to be strong. And as a church, we're uh, on a hike together. We get to go and bear these burdens together. Okay, so the, uh, by way of review, the Bible doesn't condemn or avoid doubts, like saying you're some kind of sinful loser if, you've got, if you are questioning things, if what you believe doesn't match with what you see, as we'll get into in a second. But it doesn't view them as ends in and of themselves either. Um, our world really celebrates doubts as almost sovereign within themselves, uh, in and of themselves, um, started by Rene uh, Descartes. Basically, you only believe that which you cannot doubt. Therefore, it is, it is human, and that people took that even further to say it is human to be able to question things. It's, that's what makes us who we are. So questioning is, is considered a virtue in our, in, our, uh, in our culture in and of itself. Now, the Bible wouldn't say either of those things. It would say it's not something bad, but it's not something to revel in either. It's something to work through and move through through the wisdom of God, to make you stronger. The Bible sees doubt as a path leading to wisdom. And every doubt, as we're going to see, has a lot of truth in it. Doubts, doubts are not unreasonable. There's a lot of things that are valid that cause doubts. Okay, so secondly, let's look at the particulars of Asaph's doubt here and see if we can learn about how doubt happens how we come across it, how it occurs to us. And first, we're going to see that doubts happen when there's a clash. I've already alluded to this. There's a clash between beliefs and reality, or perceived reality, okay? Uh, look at the clash between verse 1 and then the last part of verse 3 through verse 12. You'll see a clash. He says, surely God is good to Israel. There's his good theological statement. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. There it is. To those who are pure in heart. Now look at the end of verse 3 through 12. He says, when I, then when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, they don't have any struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens that are common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts come iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff, they speak with malice, and in their arrogance they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. 
Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up the waters in abundance. They say, how can, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. They're always carefree, and they increase in wealth. So he starts with this psalm with this high and lofty truth. God is good to those who are dedicated to him, They're pure in, to those who are pure in heart. But then that truth is challenged by what he sees and experiences in the, world, in the real world. There is a clash that happens. He says in verse 1, I thought God was good, but then something I saw really challenged that premise. I think we can all probably relate to that, especially those of us that grew up in a Christian environment. We grow up learning these truths that are true, these platitudes that we accept, that we know are true, but they're tested by what we see. So doubt happens when our faith is seemingly not big enough or clashes with what we experience in real life. Um, so there are a lot, a lot of things that cause doubt. There are a lot of these apparent contradictions that we find. But the particular thing that caused Asaph's doubt is that he's seeing basically a general unfairness in life and uh, injustice wherever he looks. He's saying uh, he's basically he sees people who are outright nefarious, who are preying on the weaknesses of others, who are extorting people and who were leading in violence, tyrants, people who were lying, who had no interest in doing good, and their lives were working out really well. They were being blessed. They were prospering off of uh, hurting the weak and preying off the weaknesses of others. And then Asaph saw people like himself, other people like himself, who were trying to live peacefully and fairly. Um, they were doing their best to have a good life, to love others, to be fair and equitable. And, they were get, and those were the people getting devoured. Those were the people getting hurt. Those were the people that barely had enough money. Those were the people that were living hand to mouth and some of them not making it all together. Basically, Asaph is saying, this world is supposed to be made and ruled by a good, benevolent God. Right? That's what's supposed to be happening. That's what I learned growing up. In the t God is good. That's what's supposed to be happening here. God is good. So how is it that this good God can let people who manipulate and hurt others and who promote themselves have great, prosperous lives? Why is that? This just, is not, this just does not seem right. They're doing evil, godless stuff, and they're getting away with it. And not only just getting away with it, they seem to be getting rewarded by it. <laughs> it's paying off for them. And on top of that, those who are trying to do what's right and live fairly, they have it worse than anyone else. He's, this, this is what made him almost slip and lose his faith. I know a lot of people that that's the same thing that makes them slip and almost lose their faith today. Um, now, as I said before, this doubt and others, as you can see, there's, it's reasonable. There's valid points to this, or there's valid things to consider and valid things to talk about. It's not as if all doubts are groundless. In fact, the Bible is chock full of stuff to talk about when it comes to justice and fairness and equity. God cares about that, and Christians should be all about that. But the point is, most doubts have valid concerns that if we wrestle with them, don't avoid them and don't accept them either, but wrestle with them and work through them together, our faith can be made stronger. The truth is, as you've noticed, especially recently, we live in a world where self-promoting, proud, ruthless, exploitive behavior can make you a ton of money. That's the world we live in. How do we reconcile that? There's a clash. So first, doubts are caused by a clash between beliefs and what, we're, what we see on the street. In real life, when we read the news, when we see what's going on, those are that they're hard to reconcile. They make us almost slip. Secondly, the deadliest doubts, the, the kind that really almost take our faith away, they're not just in, they're not intellectual clashes like what I just described, but they're experiential. Look, Ace, this is real personal for Asaph. He's feeling this. Look at, look at uh, in verse 13 and 14, he talks about how personal this is. He says, Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have, I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. This, the, in other words, these are things that are happening to him. He's experiencing this. This is happening to him. 
Now, I'm sure Asaph wasn't living under a rock before this. He knew um, as an abstract fact that there was such a thing as injustice in the world. No doubt about it. He knew it in his mind. He had read about it, and he probably disagreed with it and said, yeah, that's bad, right? But now it's happening to him. So now it's real to him. It's affecting him. He's feeling this in his own life. And that's what makes this doubt particularly potent and powerful in his life when it strikes him. Doubts happen when experience contradicts what your mind knows. That's how doubts happen. When experience contradicts what your minds know. You grew up believing in love and truth and doing the right things and, also, and, you know, and defending the weak and be, doing what's right. Sure, you know that there's suffering in the world. You get it. You've read about it. You hear about it. And, you, and maybe you've said some, like a patent answer before of, you know, but, you know, God works all things together for good for those that love the Lord. You know, something that is, that is true, but you kind of use it as kind of like a magic spell to make it go away. But God, there's a purpose in this. Now we don't have to deal with it or talk about it until it happens to you. Now it's different. Now it's real. Now that, that uh, Bible verse doesn't have the grip that it had before, right? Because now it's being challenged. That truth is really being put to the test. And then, and only then, once you go through that test, do, the, do you have the opportunity to truly believe in Romans 8.28, to know it and to mean it. It'll take root in your soul. It'll become part of you, but only after it's tested. You knew it before, but now you can really know it because you're going to see that it works in your life, but only when you go through it, only when you take the steepest part of the mountain. That's the nature of doubt. So doubt happens when what we believe clashes with what we see, and it's even more potent when it's personal, when it happens to you. When the doctor says it to you, when you realize you're not exempt from suffering, um, when, you, when you lose your, your money and your financial security, when the person that you are depending on says, I'm leaving, I'm betraying you, that's when it becomes real. Those are those opportunities, and that's where doubt, really, you're on a precipice at that moment. You're teetering. That's the, that's the idea. Up in front of you is the direction to God, and down below, you're talking about slipping, and not just a little slip, you're talking about falling. That's the idea here. And we find ourselves in this situation. So how did Asaph get through this? How did he get through it? Well, there's a lot of beautiful things here that if we apply this, it's just wonderful. First, I want to point out to you, and I want to go through this quickly because I know I, I don't have too much time. But um, one is he dared to be honest with himself. I think that's the biggest, one of the biggest things here. He dared to, to, he took in all the data points, including the data that he found inside of his own soul. And you can see it there in verse 3. Look, look at the word that he uses. He almost slipped because, why? He says, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I envied them. This, this is an honest admission. That's what this is. He's admitting a motive within his own heart, that's skewing how he's seeing things. That's adding um, pressure to how he's seeing things to where he can't see clearly. He's admitting that he's jealous of the wicked. In other words, what he's basically saying is, I knew about injustice before, but now I care because it's happening to me, and I'm a little jealous because then the reason I'm so impassioned about this, the reason my belly's on fire about this injustice is because I kind of want a piece of what they're getting. I'm envying that. They're getting something that I really want. And it's making me mad that I'm over here doing what's right and they're doing what's wrong and, I, and they're getting the prosperity that I, that I want. He's bitter because he'd, um, he'd like to have a little bit of that wealth. He'd like to have a little bit of that power, okay? See, doubts have the potential, if we let them, to reveal things inside of us that need to be dealt with. The, the doubts like trials, like suffering. Um, my favorite president, James Garfield, um, he, he made this incredible statement when he had been shot in the back 
um, and basically had this long death. Uh, and, but on his way there, he said, um, trials, uncertainties, doubts, they're like storms at sea. They shake up what's on the sea bottom and it comes floating to the top. And what he was saying is, down on the bottom of the sea, sand and everything grabs hold to relics of old ships and things like that until a hurricane comes through and shakes up that sea bottom and think what's really down there comes bloop, coming to the top. And doubt has that same effect. When you're doubt and when you're brave enough to be honest with yourself, to really look in there, you'll start to see not just the, the facts about the injustice, that stuff's real, that's true, um, but you'll also start to see some other motives. I don't know what the percentage is. Some doubts are like, you know, 80% true, 20% motive, or 20% true, 80% motive. But there's, there's some mixture in there of things that are really true that need to be thought through. Reasonable doubt, but also mixed in with our own stuff, our own motive, that those things aggravate and make float to the top. Asaph may not, might not have seen this jealousy unless it was aggravated by what he was seeing on the outside. Something was aggravated. I think the first thing that we can learn here is pay attention to what's going on in you. Um, look at what's, what you're seeing. Pay attention to that also. But don't forget to see what, that is, what that's bringing up in you, what's coming to the surface. And what, what makes us not see that, typically, what makes us not be brave enough to look inwardly, um, is we feel justified to feel envious and jealous because that part is true. Because that part is actually true, I'm now justified to almost slip, to start to stop climbing. I'm justified to, to be angry at God. I'm justified because that part's true. He didn't, he's, he's not uh, coming up on his part of the bargain here, right? And we can get distracted about what's coming on inside of us. Doubt like trials, like suffering, helps us look inwardly. Pay attention to what it's doing in you and what God might want to rub out of you with this doubt, okay? That's the first thing. Secondly, um, he put himself in the right environment. He's honest with himself, but he also took action. He put himself in the right environment. Here's where things turn around, and you can see it in, uh, in the Scripture. In fact, all... It's verse 17 where things turn around, but I'll read a little bit before that so you can see the contrast. Pick it up in verse 13. He says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I've, I've been punished every morning. If I had said I, I, I will speak thus, I would have destroyed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. And here's the turn. Until I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their final destiny. He went to a worship service. That's the idea. He, um, he surrounded himself with others that were ascending the mountain. He, um, he prayed. He sang. He worshiped. He brought himself, not pretending that those doubts weren't there. No, he brought himself. In fact, it was the doubt that drove him to the sanctuary that brought him there. He went to church to deal with his doubt, you could say. He went to the sanctuary. He did something. Um, and there's an element to all of this that's usually not taken into account, and that's the social element in this. Um, we know now um, that all of our beliefs, including our doubts, are caused by a combination of intellectual thought but even to a larger degree, what's unseen that's formed how you believe and how you think um, is your social experience, who you grew up with, who you surround yourself with, the people you read, the things that, the voices that you're listening to. In other words, we like to think that we've arrived at our beliefs through independent, rigorous, intellectual thinking and study. We like that, and we believe that. We really think that. But the reality is, we tend to find uh, the opinions and the information of others that we really want to be like and that we respect, we tend to find their opinions more plausible than others. That's human. That's very human. In every society, there are people who you want to accept you. 
Um, when you walk into this room, science tells us that you scan the room. Your, your brain is wired to scan the room for people that you will associate with, people that you will distance yourself with. You're scanning for safety. Who will I be safe with? Who will I be accepted with? Who will, might reject me? And we do this with lightning quick without even knowing about it. And there's people in every society that we, that we want to accept us. We don't want to be alone. It's very human. We don't want to feel like we're on the outside or constantly rejected. There are certain circles that we really want to be a part of. It's quite natural. We have something called um, mirror neurons. Have you heard of this? Where without our eyes scan the faces of others and we begin to mirror and acclimate what we read in the faces of others. The problem is with that, our, our, our mirror neurons don't always tell the truth. This is, you know, married couples know this, right? Why'd you look at me like that? You know, and the person's like, I was thinking about what we're going to eat for dinner. You know, but the, sometimes they don't tell the truth. But what, what are we doing? Lightning fast. We read somebody else and we adjust. We start to, we, we, we posture ourselves. Um, that happens wherever we're at. Environment plays a huge part in this. So who we are with, who we are with the most, actually has a huge impact on what we believe and what we're skeptical of and how we're skeptical. As hard as this might be to admit, like I said, we like to think that we did all this work on our own, that we read the, and really thought it through, and we, you know, we're like a think tank in and of ourselves. But the fact is that there's, that there's data that tells us that our social surroundings have a lot to do with how we're formed intellectually, with our beliefs and our doubts. Um, I was walking through my neighborhood the other day, and I met one, uh, a neighbor who was on the phone with her son, and she was yelling at her son. And um, she had a dog that, I, that came up and started, um, you know, being friendly with me, so I was petting the dog, and we got into this conversation, and she said, oh, I was yelling at my son who lives in Colorado, who, who he doesn't believe, um, he doesn't believe that the police should be defunded. And she goes, she rolled her eyes. And she goes, and I said to him, it's just because you're living in, in Colorado that you think that. Not also saying maybe it's because she's living in Seattle that she thinks the way she thinks. Uh, okay, in here you're wearing masks. Let me put it this way. Um, and it's easy to wear a mask here in Seattle. It's really easy. Drive to eastern Washington. And you'll find, you can wear a mask, but you'll find, you'll feel like everyone's staring at you. You'll, you'll feel very out of place. People will look at you like, oh, you're the, you're the fools that, that fall for the hoax, the COVID hoax, right? Here, when people don't wear a mask, we look at them weird. Oh, you inconsiderate neighbor, right? And we all tend to clump together. We all tend to, and those that are apart feel very uncomfortable, very uncomfortable. Well, a lot of that has to do with the, the environment that we're surrounded in. That's why a lot of, that's why when people clump together, they tend to have the same beliefs, Right? Um, okay, so the idea here is that Asaph didn't get into doubt just by thinking by himself. There was also an experiential element, and there was also a social element that got him into doubt. So he's, and, and the idea is he's not going to get out of the doubt by just thinking about it. He needs to kind of match. He matches intellectual doubt and uh, or the social element and the experiential element by going to church by having another experience by ha by surrounding himself with another society with people that are uh, speaking truth and speaking God's truth he surrounds himself with a different perspective like I said he sings he prays have you experienced that uh, on a Sunday morning I certainly have in fact even this morning um when Nick was explaining justification and sanctification, uh, you know, I, I found that, man, it was like, a, it was like a, an adjustment for me. It was like things got back. I, I was straightened out. As he was, I was, my spirit was like, oh, that's right. Why? Because I entered into a new environment, and he, somebody else was speaking truth, and my soul remembered, oh, that's, tr that's right. That's true. Have you ever gone like that throughout the week? You get discouraged. You experience doubt or maybe failure. And then you feel downcast, destroyed by God, uh, condemned by God. And then you come to church and you remember, oh, that's right. He loves me. And he'll always love me. And his grace never leaves. And you're, you're, you're ah, until I went to the sanctuary, until I went to church. That's why church is so important and especially a great place to bring your doubts to. Great place for that. Okay, um, 
Thirdly, it was at church that he starts to think. He really, and he starts to think really well. I, I, and I know Justin feels this way too. I'm so sad that church has become a place synonymous in our society with um, not being good thinkers. You, did you know the Bible has more to say about how to think than how to feel? Did you know that? The Bible is all about rigorous thinking and thinking well. And therefore, the church should be a great place to come to for some resources, for some good thinking about what you're experiencing and what you're encountering um, in, your, in your life. Okay, so he says some extremely profound things here, and I'll try to move through it quickly. So move, move back to the metaphor of climbing on the mountain, okay, in your head. When you're climbing, every steep, when you're climbing a very steep grade on a mountain, everywhere you put your foot, in a sense, is an act of faith, is it not? When you're climbing, you've got to make choices. I mean, picture yourself on uh, a cliff or on a very steep grade, and you're feeling the pressure of, man, I could slip. You've got every place, you've got to decide, I'm going to put my hand here, and maybe you test it first. And you've got to move your weight over to the object of your faith, your entire weight, until you can transfer it to something else that you're also putting your faith in. It's a very precarious, um, concentrating situation, isn't it? For those of you that have hiked. Um, everywhere you put your foot or your hand is an act of faith. You're, you're depending on that little crag or crevice or foothold. Um, there's a documentary on Netflix about the guy that climbed... Um, do you guys know what it is? Um, in Yosemite, what is it? Yeah, El Capitan. Yeah, the freestyle. And you know, if you, the camera's right on his fingers, and he's putting his weight on, I mean, something that, I mean, his whole finger, and he's got these moves where he puts his thumb to hold his weight, and he transfers all of his weight on the side of this cliff. I mean, it's, in, it's insane. You should look it up and watch it. It's amazing. There's a few of them. One that does it without ropes, and one that does it with ropes. Um, but... Um, that's the idea, that's the metaphor here. Every time you put your foot or hand on something, you're putting your faith in it. And if it doesn't hold you, you're, you're gone. It's it, it's over. Now, so far, up to this point, his faith has been under attack. The idea is, you get the sense that he's in a defensive posture, that he's kind of back on his heels, that he's encountered something that's... that's, that's um, that's challenging him. But at this point, beginning at verse 18, he goes to an offensive posture. He starts to examine the faith of the prosperous. He starts to examine the faith of, the, of, the, of, the, uh, of those who are winning by hurting others. Look at verse 18. He says, surely you place them on slippery ground. This is the turning point. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors as a dream when one awakes. So when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Okay, see the shift. Now their path is in question. It's as if he realizes that they, basically, let me, because I'm running out of time, you can't not believe in something without simultaneously believing in something else in that same moment. In other words, the way the Bible would say this is, um, there's not belief and unbelief in a sense. When you, when you unbelieve in God, you are in that moment putting your weight, distributing your weight on something else. Think of the metaphor. If I'm not going to put my faith in God, that means I'm going to put all my weight in another philosophy. In other words, Asaph is realizing that both are acts of faith. Everyone is um, exerting faith. In fact, the way the Bible would describe this is, is faith is not the strength of your faith, but the strength of the object of your faith. Um, Let's say Matt and I are stranded on the side of a cliff. Let's say we're stranded on El Capitan, okay? And let's say Matt is a confidence-experienced climber. There, and there's only two ways out. We both agree that, okay, we could try that way or we could try that way. And Matt confidently says, it's that way. I know it. I know it is. I've been doing this for a long time. I've got all this faith that it's that way. And he tries it with all of his mighty faith and he picked the wrong way, and he dies. Now, I am not an experienced climber, and I'm very insecure, and my faith is really shaky, 
but I pick the right way and I live. Why? Because of my faith? No, because of the object of my faith. That's the idea. Uh, everybody is putting their faith in something. Um, you're believing in something. If not in God, then something else, even if it's your own faculties, even if it's your own reasoning. The point is, you can't, the point is, you can't prove that there's, you, you can't prove that there's a God, but you also can't prove that there's not a God. So either way, you're putting your faith in something, and so now Asaph starts to, starts to, starts to um, compare which path, which path is better. He says that they are living for wealth, but their wealth goes away. It's going to fade. It'll be taken, right? They're living for beauty and for pleasure, but all of that is fading. If you don't have God, then you really don't have anything. But if there is a God, then though I am weak, I'm actually the strong one right now. I might be poor, but I'm actually rich because I'm living for someone that will, something that will never fade. I will never perish. And if, if I'm with him, that means I will never fade. So take, take, the, take what he's struggling with in particular. Take injustice, for example. Recon, um, reconciling the issues of evil. I'll put it this way. For a Christian, reconciling the issues of evil and suffering and injustice with a loving God is a problem. It is, it is a, it is a, it's not easy to explain that. There is some reconciling to happen there. But reconciling the issues of evil, suffering, and injustice with the idea that there is no God is an even greater problem. It's an even bigger problem here. Because if there is no God, then the strong eating the weak is just the natural thing that happens. You can't say that it's wrong. You have no intellectual basis to protest and say this is wrong and this is unjust. If there's no God, that's just what happens. It's dog-eat-dog -dog out there. It is about who's stronger and who can defeat who the, what's weak. There are no wrongs or right if there is no God. Just an endless chain of reaction of, uh, reaction of cause and effect in a closed system. Even what you feel, even the chemicals in your brain. If you feel love and loyalty to the people you're sitting with, uh, you know, uh, evolution will tell you that's just a chemical reaction in your brain to help you propagate the species. And if that's true, then it means nothing and you're alone. You want to know why? Because the chemicals in your brain, if you're putting trust in your faculties, the chemicals in your brain, they have no interest in telling you what's true. They're just chemicals firing. They have no interest in actually taking in data and information and giving you a... How do you know you're not just a brain in a vat somewhere? You don't. You can't trust really in anything. The point is... If there's a, a loving God, then, then and then we have the basis of saying that's wrong and that's right. I can get outraged about that. I can stand up for that person because there's a God and he's righteous and he's true and he's good. That actually makes sense. But if there is no God, oh man, I have no basis of doing anything about the wrong in this world. If there is no God, then, it's, then it is the strongest who wins. Therefore, Yes, those things are hard to reconcile for a Christian, but even harder to reconcile if there is no God. And that's what gets Asaph through. He says, yeah, I, I have a finite perspective. I don't see it all, but I see enough to where I can reasonably put my faith in this ledge. I can reasonably put my faith in God. I have enough for that. I don't have enough to trust that one over there. And finally, last point, real quick, how did Asaph come out stronger? Look at verse 23. He says, yet... I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will never take me into glory, or you will, you will, afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has, has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So he's now comparing himself and his beliefs with theirs, and here's the most striking comparison that he finds. They're alone. He says, they're alone. Even though they're surrounded with people and they have followers and they're wealthy and it seems like they've got it all together, ultimately, they're by, as he's looking at them, <laughs> ultimately, they're by themselves. They're alone. And yet, you're always with me. Even though I might have no one around me, you're with me. I'm never alone. 
Even though I might lose all my wealth and might lose it all following you, I've got you and you are the end in and of itself. I've got you. I've got no one in heaven except you. You are my goal. Um, what's their philosophy? Verse 11, it says, how can God know? Does the most, have, does the most high have knowledge? In other words, um, either there is no God or if there is a God, he just doesn't care. That's their philosophy. And, and now Asaph realizes if they're right, then even though they have everything, they actually have nothing. See, if this is all there is and all you have is your body, that's all there is. There's no soul. There's no heaven. There's no hell. There's no, there's no uh, spirit. None of that. Everything's just material, just physical. Then love and laughter and joy and hope and companionship are all just meaningless. They don't mean anything. And what you do to help society is, you know, when the earth moves a little closer to the sun and we all burn and extinct, no one's going to care what little old lady you helped across the street. It doesn't matter. It means nothing. If, it, if, if there is no God, then really you're all alone. But then Asaph says, but I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. In other words, I'm never alone, ever. Though I have nothing, I have everything. And though I suffer and everything in this life can take everything away from me, it can't take you from me. It can't take your love from me. It can't take true meaning and purpose from me. It can't take those things. Now, how does he know that? How does he know that he is a God who is with him, always holding his hand and guiding him? How is he so sure of this? Well, because he went into the temple. And in the temple, back in those days especially, he would have seen a sacrifice. Remember, we go back to the mountain analogy. He's climbing up a mountain. At the top of the mountain in, in the ancient Near East, on the top of the mountain was the high place, the temple where the God's presence dwelt. And there in the Garden of Eden, on a mountain, remember there was a sacrifice of animals to provide skin to cover up the nakedness of Adam and Eve, right? And then on Ararat, Noah made a sacrifice to God, made a little altar, a little tabernacle, and sacrificed, and it appeased his wrath. It appeased his wrath. Mount Moriah, Abraham went up to make a sacrifice of his son. God stopped him, pointing to the greater sacrifice when later Jesus would ascend. Actually, let me put it this way. Jesus, we were not saved by the ascent of ourselves, as Nick pointed out. We were saved by the great descent. Jesus came down from heaven to our earth, to our doubt, to our pain, to our suffering, to, our, to all the injustice that we experience. He came down and he ascended the mountain of Calvary and he made a sacrifice of himself. For all of the times that we doubt, for all the, things, all the times that we falter, remember he said, he goes, I was a brute beast before you. I was, a, I was an animal before you. I was, in other words, I was struggling with you, God. And yet you're with me. How can we know that God is with us even when we doubt, even when we struggle, even when there's not answers, even when things don't make sense, even when our experiences are rocking us? How do we know that he's with us even in that? Well, because he took on the ultimate doubt. On the cross, um, well, God let, God let go of Jesus' hand. He let him fall so that this psalmist can say, you're always holding my hand. You're always with me. You'll never leave me. On the cross, Jesus was left. He was abandoned for what you and I deserve, to what all doubters really deserve. And, and Jesus was the one faithful, truly pure human being. If anyone deserved blessing and righteousness, it was him. And yet, he swapped with us. He took our curse. He took what we deserve so that we can know that we always have God with us, even when we doubt even in our darkest times. That's how we go through it. That's how we climb. That's how we keep climbing to know that someone already climbed for us and is with us. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you that you descended and then ascended up that mountain and up into the presence of God where that sacrifice appeased God's wrath for me. Thank you that I, even with my sins of yesterday and the day before, I don't have to, I can be confidently in your presence right now. 
because you bore my just grievous sin and darkness. You took it. And now I know you're always with me no matter what. Through all the ups and downs, the joys and the, uh, the mountains and the valleys, the joys and defeats, you are there. You're always with me, holding my hand. Those that don't have you, they don't have that. They might have money. They might have wealth. They may have power. I pray that you would open their eyes to how alone they really are so they may reach out and grab you and hold you, a hand that's extended for them. Like Nebuchadnezzar, where you revealed the truth to him. And he cried out to you, I pray the same for those that are living without you. Show them reality and continue reminding us of it as well. And may this church, make Calvary the Hill, be a beacon of light where people can bring their doubts, their troubles as they are and know that they'll have wisdom to walk through that together. In Jesus' name, amen.